0: The scripture reading this morning is from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Chapters 5, verses 11 through 21 from the Common English Bible regarding the ministry of reconciliation. So we try to persuade people since we know that what it means to fear the Lord. We are well known by God and I hope that in your heart we are well known by you as well. We aren't trying to commend ourselves to you again. Instead, we are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you could answer those who take pride in superficial appearance and not in what is in the heart. If we are crazy, it's for God's sake. If we are rational, it's for your sake. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. One died for the sake of all. Therefore, we All died. He died for the sake of of all so that those who are alive should not live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. So then, from this point on, we won't recognize people by human standards. Even though we used to know Christ by human standards, that isn't how we know him now. So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. All of these new things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. By not counting people's sins against them, he has trusted us with this message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors who represent Christ. God is negotiating with you through us. We beg you as Christ's representatives, be reconciled to God. God caused the one who didn't know sin to be sin for our sake, so that through him we could become the righteousness of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you,
1: Steve. So as I mentioned at the outset, this is the third week of our conversation over the debate that's raging within the United Methodist Church. I apologize for those of you who are new to this conversation. I'll try to bring you up to speed on this. The conversation is about kind of the conundrum in the United Methodist Church that we find ourselves in because of some polar opposites regarding human sexuality and how we are conversing about this not conversing about it and how we are treating one another. And we certainly as a United Methodist Church in a local context could be silent, we could ignore this, we could hope that as the onslaught of this conversation rushes our way that it would just part the seas and go right around us, but it won't. And so we've decided to be a little bolder about this, to go ahead and have a conversation proactively. Knowing that eventually this is going to come down to us and we'll be prepared as a con- congregation because we have sought to understand what's going on. We've been more informed about what's been transpiring, right? Last week, if you remember correctly, I showed you this, this lovely big book.? Right? So those of you who do not recognize this, this is a Franklin Covey planner. It is vintage circa about 1990 roughly. It is for sale. Anybody who needs it, two dollars. I got a bid for two, two fifty, two fifty. Anybody? No. But uh, uh, one of the interesting things about this is, of course, it tried to help you devise your day and your priorities. But one of the things that Covey always talked about is, is keep the end in mind. Know what your outcome is that you are driving towards, so that you can prioritize the events of your day and your week to be able to do that. The end in mind for us is to generate understanding as a congregation, to have a conversation about what is transpiring around us, to know the two sides of this conversation so that we as ourselves might be able to be better informed, understand, and converse one with another, right? As I've said over and over, dear friends, this is not about trying to figure out how to split St. John's in half. I, I have no goal of doing that whatsoever as a church. I mean, I could have picked something else to talk about, right? And probably divided the church over it. Or probably not, evidently, right? But, but let's keep the end in mind about this. It's to have a conversation. To holistically understand what's going on around us. From both perspectives in our church. Believe it or not, at one time, dear friends, I was a skinny boy. Right? There was one time in my life when I was a little bit thinner than what I am right now. At five foot ten and a half inches, I actually used to be able to jump and grab a hold of a 10 foot basketball rim. I was about three inches short at my peak of being able to actually dunk a basketball as a short kid, right? Now, that of course was about three and a half decades ago, and about 70 pounds lighter ago, when that happened for me, but when I used to be able to, now my hops looks about like this. That's about all the further I can get off the ground anymore. Now, the, the interesting thing about it, too, is, is I don't jump anymore for some very good reasons, because in that action, there's some reactions. Primarily starting down here at the base of my feet, just kind of working its way up through my hips into my lower back, And right? If you think about it. If we all know in life there is that, that saying for every action there is a reaction, right? For change that is happening around us, an action of change that's happening around us, there is also the reaction that comes to it. We all know that for several decades there has been a bid in the United Methodist Church to create change within our denomination. To battle against kind of the orthodox traditional perspective that's had the most influence, and and particularly in the book of Discipline Language, has had the greatest influence on our church. We remember from last week that this conversation began in the mid-1960s with the, the Good News Movement and their launching to be able to bring orthodoxy and traditionalism back to the church, and through that we began adopting language into the book of discipline that became exclusionary. Groups like the Good News and the Wesleyan Covenant Association are the progenitors of that. They keep promoting it within our church. And since the 1970s, we've had an opposite reaction to orthodoxy and traditionalism. To this disciplinary language that is exclusionary, and it's best represented by what's called the Reconciling Ministries Network in the United Methodist Church. Now, here's a little bit of their history for you. If you look on their website at their mission statement, the Reconciling Ministries Network says that as an organization, they are dedicated to the full inclusion of people of all sexual orientation and gender identities. In both policy and practice of the United Methodist Church. Now you probably get to the end of that and you wonder what do they mean by it. right? That means that we are welcoming people into our churches of sexual or same-sex orientations and gender identities. And that we will not exclude them from any part of the life of the church. Including marriage and also including ordination. They are seeking to break down those barriers in our church life. Now, if you recall the history with me real quickly, 1972 at General Conference, we decided to introduce language that said that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. That became part of our disciplinary language. That was the first step back towards orthodoxy and traditionalism. The reaction from that came in the form of what's called Reconciling Congregations Program that was launched. It came about 11 years later in 1983. It was birthed out of a group called Affirmation in the United Methodist Church. They intentionally used the term reconciling to lift up the divide between the church and persons who were gay and lesbian. And to figure out how to reconcile instead of exacerbate the situation. To draw closer together one another rather than excluding people from our communities. If you think about the scripture that was used today, that was part of their theological premise comes out of that uh, scripture that we are supposed to be in a ministry of reconciliation, not a ministry that divides people one from the other. To bring people to experience God's love. A love that reconciles persons to God, but also reconciles persons to one another in a community. The counteraction to this, this push of reconciliation, was in 1984, a year later, at General Conference. We decided to take another step a little bit to the right again. And so this time, our language as a church also said that you could not ordain somebody who is gay or lesbian. So we went from homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching to now you cannot ordain somebody who is in that lifestyle. Reconciling congregation members decided to gather outside of the general conference halls and invite people to come and be a part of their network. They started actually recruiting churches and pastors and laity to join them. The first two churches in the United Methodist Church to actually become reconciling congregations were Washington Square United Methodist Church in New York City and Wesley United Methodist Church in Fresno, California. They became our two first leading kind of congregations in the reconciling movement. And then this kept going on and on. For the next 12 years, there continued to be this reaction, this push against what the church was putting down as policy and discipline. And so the reaction to that 12 years later at General Conference was for us to take another step to the right. And this time we included language that prohibited United Methodist Pastors from certifying or engaging in same-sex unions and marriages and prohibiting all United Methodist Church buildings from hosting any such wedding. All right. So we kept going further to the right. Every time there was an action, there was a reaction that pushed another reaction and on and on. It's been a chain reaction of this for several decades. In the year 2000, Reconciling Congregations program decided to break away From affirmation and become its own ministry, going under the title Reconciling Ministries Network. They established headquarters in Chicago, Illinois. And now, if you look at their website, they will give you these statistics to tell you there are 837 United Methodist churches that are now part of the Reconciling Ministries Network. They represent almost 35,000 United Methodist laity and clergy. And if you didn't know this, April 20th of this year, Country Club United Methodist Church, right over here on 59th and Warnall, voted and joined Reconciling Ministries Network. That was part of their congregational movement. They joined um, uh, one of our other churches that's close by, which is Revolution, which had already made that movement and joined several years ago. And then also uh, Broadway, or Keystone, over here off of Warnell as well, is currently in the midst of their own conversations about this. So it's not as if we're kind of like isolated in this part of the town from the topic. Other churches are conversing about this themselves. Now, you might wonder, how does a church get to this point? How do you make theological sense? Of this as well. When you read scriptures, you come from a, a certain perspective, and it can lead you down a certain path. You mentioned, remember last week I said that there are seven particular passages that the orthodox traditional group uses to say that homosexuality is wrong. It's a sin, as they would classify it, right? Well, the, the left looks at Scripture a little bit differently. They're deconstructing some of our age-old arguments around the Bible and around science and human physiology. If you think about it from the scriptural aspect first, from the left, they don't read the Bible as literalist. They're not biblical literalists. They don't read every single command as applicable for today. Right? Instead, they pay attention to the history and the context of each of these passages, trying to discern what it was that was being written and to the people that it was being written to and why. Why was it important in that day for these words to be penned and how are they applicable to us today? You think of a couple of the stories that are that are pretty well known to us or utilized in this argument from the right. Genesis 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We all know the story, right? Sodom and Gomorrah is wiped out by God in the end. Generations upon generations, we have read this story and we have told folks that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin of homosexuality. That's what we have taught people to believe about this passage and that any society who would follow there along and allow such things in their society could be susceptible to the same destruction of God. That's been preached for generations, right? But think about it this way. Maybe the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't sexual practices as far as homosexuality is concerned. Newer interpretations will tell you that the sin of the people was inhospitality to the stranger and that they used sexual abuse and rape as the mechanism to show the stranger you were not welcome in their city. If you think about an ancient, ancient people that, that worried about warring factions and the enemies who might creep in. They were inhospitable to the stranger to let others know you are not welcome to our town. You are not welcome to try to come and take over our town. And so people that would come... Would risk being violated. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, according to some interpretations, because of their hatred and their abuse of the stranger rather than the welcoming of those who were from the outside. If you think about Pauline texts like Romans and 1 Corinthians and Timothy, Paul wrote to a very particular People in a very particular time. For generations we have used Paul's own writings to preach against homosexuality in every form. Even monogamous committed unions of marriage we have preached against it. But what's the reality of first century Roman culture that we might be missing out on when we read these passages? A couple of things are prevalent in Paul's world that are not prevalent today. One of them is what was called temple prostitution. But every temple had prostitutes and elite males would go to the temples and be able to participate in that in a pagan worship experience, right? The second is what was called pederasty in its day. In Roman culture, powerful elite men would take young prepubescent boys into their home and use them as sexual objects, something that we would hor- be horrified at today, right? But that was normative practice in the Roman world of Paul's day, Paul was a contextualist. He knew that the church was a mixing between Jewish folks and these Gentile people. And they were bringing customs and norms with them that they were trying to impose upon one another or allow with one another to happen. Paul was a centrist in giving guidance to the church to say this is how we are to behave together as a community of faith who wants to follow Christ and follow the ethics of this Christ. Meaning, Jewish norms like circumcision and the prohibition against eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan false gods were no longer applicable to all of the church. That you could allow for these things, right? You can't impose circumcision on the Gentile. You've got to let them still have their freedom. Your application regarding meals isn't broad for everybody. And the sexual practices of the Gentile world. Paul was very adamant about trying to make sure and curb these kinds of abusive sexual practices from being a part of this Christian movement. He didn't want it to encroach, and so he counsels about these things to keep a hedge around the church as a group of people. But that doesn't mean Paul condemned monogamy in a same-sex relationship. These are just a couple of examples of Scripture around that kind of historical criticism that's been uh, elevated and given to us today, but to also just remind us that there's a group of people who read the Bible a little differently than just the literalism that can be prevalent for us today. But think of it also from the aspect of biology and science as well, to deconstruct some of our norms and understandings around it. There's a conversation that's going on that should help us consider things a little bit differently. Many of us all, all know that the traditional stance of the church, particularly from the right, has been that homosexuality is a sin because it is a human choice. It is something you decide to become or do. But we know today that studies in psychology and biology are beginning to break down some of that understanding and conception of the world, particularly their world. And from family experiences and stories that are being shared about young children and their confusion over this, we are beginning to be more and more educated on the aspects of biology, physiology, psychology when it comes to this part of human life. To rethink what has been our very short-sighted religious prescription and diagnosis. We know this, dear friends. Uh, history tells us that persons have been born with fully functioning, without fully functioning sexual organs for all of human history. People have been born with both genitalia for all of human history. They didn't just start all of a sudden cropping up with the Internet age by any chance, right? This has been going on for a long time. In the pre-Internet age, we also know that it was really easy to isolate people who were different than us to minimize their experiences in their life. But now people have the power to share those stories with others and to gain in these commonalities and to find out that they're no longer alone, to break down the barriers of isolation that we've created for families. And to know that gender identity and same-sex orientation aren't modern phenomenon. These go back through antiquity. They're recorded through history of humanity. I think the church needs to take a harder look at this, at the issues. Instead of just simply giving us our our cursory judgment on things, we need to be able to understand these kinds of issues. And beyond sin theology, to think of it from the aspect of even psychology, the first time the term homosexual was used, believe it or not, was 1869. It was in a German pamphlet that was produced and written in Leipzig, Germany, And psychology. The the word itself, homosexual, actually didn't enter the English language until 20 years later. 1889 is the first time it creeps into and becomes part of our own language. By the 1940s, homosexuality was discussed in the aspects of psychopathy, paranoia, and schizoid personality disorders. That's where it was lumped in under the American Academy of, of Psychiatric That's how they diagnosed it, was in those categories. And then they'd try to treat it. They'd try to treat it with things like forced hysterectomies, frontal lobotomies, transorbital lobotomies, castration, aversion cures to try to help those who were suffering from change who they were. In 1973, the American Psychiatric Association itself though had an awakening and they removed homosexuality from its official diagnostic and statistical manual or what's called the DSM. It's the guiding manual in psychiatry. They removed it from it. And today we know that sexual orientation is not viewed as chosen. It is recognized. And I would say that some would push the church and society around to to simply validate this. That they're looking for us to affirm and to validate it. And that may be what gay and lesbian groups have been doing and seek to, to do within the church is to gain the church's understanding and validation of what people are experiencing in their own lives. Now, as I mentioned about our actions at General Conference and how we keep going right on this subject. Those who are pushing and bidding for change in the church are resorting to other means, getting no satisfaction at the general church level. They are now beginning to perform or participate in what's called ecclesiastical disobedience. You might remember me using that term in our our first gathering uh, when we started this. Here's some of the the things you might want to know a little bit about this. Uh, Number one, ecclesiastical disobedience is not new in the Methodist church. We've been doing it to one another for a long, long time, a lot of generations over a lot of different issues. Think about slavery and the division of the church over the issue of slavery, right? That's one form of it. No matter what form or shape, it actually started taking this kind of form in the mid-1990s when clergy members actually started openly marrying people in same-sex unions inside and outside of United Methodist Church walls. Boards of ordained ministry, when it came to being ordained in annual conferences, actually began ordaining people who were gay or lesbian, but who have not made a public announcement about it. Because the discipline basically says that you have to be self-avowed and practicing to be excluded. Well, if you don't say anything, how does anybody say that you're self-avowed? Right? So, people would hide things about their life in order to become an ordained member. And then you think about the other things in, the, in our church that, that have been as the reaction to this. So, in the mid 1990s, annual conferences in the general churches started uh, hosting a lot of church trials, clergy trials, to try to figure out how to resolve this issue by utilizing the discipline rather than seeking to understand and have conversation. The fountainhead of this, dear friends, is the recent election and consecration of Bishop Karen Oliveto, who is lesbian and married to another woman. One perspective on this case says that Bishop Oliveto showed all the gifts and the graces of Episcopal leadership prior to her ordination and her election. And despite her sexual orientation, she was viewed as a person God was calling to be elevated to the Episcopacy. Persons on the right, though, view this a little bit differently. They see this as just another form of ecclesiastical disobedience from the people that are on the opposite side of this issue from them because it was known that she was someone who was married to another woman. Even though she didn't make her own self-proclamation about it, she had a marriage license. Everybody knew in the annual conference and in the jurisdiction This is who she was. Our Book of Discipline has very specific language around that. It was the intent of the language to exclude her, not only from ordination, but also from being an Episcopal leader. But yet the voting delegates of the Western jurisdiction overlooked those aspects of it and unanimously voted for her, elected her a bishop, and participated in her consecration. And the reaction to the reaction to the reaction is a church trial. Under the Book of Discipline, paragraph 2702.1, a church trial was initiated to try to figure out if we actually took good sense action or not. Now you define what good sense action is, right? Here's a little fat I want you guys to chew on to think about, though, when it comes to this kind of discussion and seeking to understand. Certainly there is the aspect of human physiology. If one of God's intentions for this good gift that God has given us is to procreate, folks who are in same-sex unions are going to have a little bit of trouble with that aspect of it. And the church, no, no matter what, has to maintain a sexual ethic that is applicable to all persons. If our highest ideal in the church is monogamy committed sexual expression that is within the context of marriage, how does that become applicable to all persons, especially when there are studies, several studies that are out that show that promiscuity is high, very high, abnormally high within the gay and the lesbian community. We know that one of our highest ideals in our sexual ethic is for all people to have sex and the good gift that God has given it. For it to be within the confines of certain circumstances, and here's the third thing that I want you to think about. You know, we use the argument that says, "Well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality." How many of you are firm believers that the four Gospels are a complete biography of Jesus' life? Everything that happened in Jesus' life is recorded in the four Gospels, and every you know, nothing that's not there would ever happen. Anybody? Get any hands raised on that? So is it possible that there are some things that Jesus encountered and spoke about and ministered towards that never got mentioned in the Gospels? Right? There's a lot about Christ's life. Even one of the texts says that so many things of Jesus that happened in His words and His deeds are not recorded here because if they were recorded, it would fill libraries with everything. So I don't think it's fair for us to use the argument that just because Jesus doesn't mention it in the Gospels that Jesus never said anything about it. There's probably a good chance that Jesus had a lot to say about it. We just aren't privy to his communication. Here's a couple of questions I really want you to consider as as we wrap up this moment together. A couple of things for you just to kind of think about yourself and where, where you would find yourself in this conversation as you're leaning into and trying to discover and understand. What have you been taught? What have you been taught in the church, and the world around you regarding nature versus nurture and that kind of conversation that we hear, especially regarding human sexuality and how does it influence your religious views? Or maybe to wrestle with this question, what aspect of today's conversation was enlightening for you? Is beginning to push maybe a little bit of your understanding. What is it that you need to seek to understand a little bit further when it comes to this? Next week, when we, when we conclude this series, we're going to talk about the question, can we remain silent? And discuss as a church just kind of that idea. What, what are we really thinking about? And how do we converse as a congregation about this? Can we remain silent? But for now, I want to invite you to a moment of prayer, and then we're going to join together in the affirmation of faith as we proclaim who God is, what we believe, and prepare for communion. So let us pray. Righteous God, your mercy awaits us when we return to you in meekness and repentance. We ask that you cleanse us from selfishness, falseness, judgmentalism, all which separates us from your fellowship and fellowship with one another. We pray that through your atoning love, you might heal the brokenness in our lives and in our world. And with wholeness restored, that you might help us live for the coming of your Son, our Savior. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to take your worship.